This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. reality is is that lots of couples plan sex and it doesn't mean that then it's not natural it doesn't mean that it's not just as good it doesn't mean that it's cheating or boring it means that it then happens which generally is a good thing for a lot of couples who want to keep that kind of side of their relationship alive welcome to the tonic i'm your host jamie busson and we're here to talk about your health and wellness on today's show we'll learn about the role your liver plays in your health We'll find out about cognitive bias. We'll also hear about building block cookbooks. And lastly, we'll discuss why it's okay to plan date night. But first, a little bit of business. Today's show is brought to you by Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, Visit their website at OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team, headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Very good, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on again. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And this time, I wouldn't say it's an emergency, but, you know, I spent the entire summer R&Ring, which means sometimes I drink a little bit more, I guess seasonally, you know, like there's Christmas time when you drink a little bit more and also maybe the summer when you're out on a patio. And it got me thinking about the stress that you put on your liver when you do some extra drinking. So I thought today we should discuss liver health and the role of the liver within your health. So let's start there. What is the role of the liver? For sure. Yeah, I see you gave your liver a good workout. Yeah. The thing about the liver is the liver is one of those organs that has great regenerative capacity. So, you know, you, it can take a licking and keep on ticking and it can regrow. So I, that's why, you know, people don't think about the liver. Right. The liver is, I think, one of the most important organs in your body because one of the things that it does is manufactures a lot of proteins that you see swimming around in the blood. It takes sugars, converts it into fats to store it, yes. convert sugars into glycogen for later storage, etc. It detoxifies things from the body. Now, when I say detoxify, both stuff that comes from the outside and stuff that is generated on the inside. So, for example, um, if you're under stress, corticosteroid is broken down by, by some of the liver. Some of it is broken down by the liver and then into a form which can then be excreted. Some of the toxins that you 
taken from the outside is broken down by the liver, can, which can then be excreted, right? So the liver plays a very important role. We can talk about the liver in terms of blood sugar, cholesterol, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things with, where the liver is concerned and cholesterol, you know, back in the day, people would say, oh, your cholesterol levels are high. You should consume less products with cholesterol in it, right? Yes. The amount of cholesterol coming from the outside is roughly 10% of the amount of cholesterol is made in the body, right? So even if you were to stop consuming cholesterol-rich products from outside, you roughly have 90% of it still made by the liver. So usually a lot of times when your cholesterol levels are high, it's not because of what you're consuming. It's because the liver has gone off the rails and start pumping out more cholesterol. That's why a lot of the cholesterol drugs out there control cholesterol production at the liver level. Huh. And that's hereditary, right? Uh, The amount of cholesterol your liver produces is is driven by that, isn't it? Not necessarily hereditary. Something is going on that we really don't know why the liver is pumping out more cholesterol. Right? It probably has something to do with the control of it. And that's just one of the things that the liver would affect your health with. The other one I talk about is the amount of glucose in the blood. Right. right? A lot of the times when glucose levels are a little bit low, the liver then reverses itself and takes fat, breaks it down back into sugars. Huh. Right. So it releases sugars in the blood. So for, that's why for some diabetics, they say, but I haven't had any sugar all day. Why is my sugar level high? Well, that's because the liver is breaking down fat, etc., to make sugar. The reason it does that sugar is very important in the, in the body because the brain runs on sugar. If it doesn't have any sugar at all, it will die. Your red blood cells need sugar to, to live. If it doesn't have any sugar, there's no alternative fuel source for the red blood cells, right? Mm-hmm. So this is why the liver is important, right? It maintains that, that certain amount of blood sugar, sugars. However, every so often, right, in diabetes, for example, the sugar levels go out of whack. Now, I don't want to make it sound like it's only the liver's fault because there's other things that are taking place. For example, right. the, pan- pancreas. the pancreas. Yep. If the pancreas is not pumping out enough insulin, right, it causes your blood sugars to go up. If the cells are not receptive, meaning are not sensitive to the insulin that's being produced, blood sugars go up. So there, there's many different places that can cause the blood sugars to go up, right? But one of the most important steps is the, the level of the liver. Okay. And I think of the liver, I think of it performing the task of dealing with toxins in the body. Hence the alcohol system. Yeah. The alcohol effect. Do you know, um, when I say the thing with the liver, it, it can take a lot of abuse before it finally gives up. For example, you know, alcoholics, they can drink for years and years and years without any problems showing up in the liver. And then one day, boom, all right, it, yeah. it, you get cirrhosis of the liver. And that may be because I think there's something called the, the tipping point. Yes. Right? You can take so much abuse, and then once it reaches that certain level, just cascades and everything stops working as good as it should be. So with a liver, it isn't sort of a, a gradual degradation. It, it, one day, you could just find that your liver just doesn't function properly. Yeah. literally. Well, I won't say literally one day. No, no. It okay. is gradual, but it builds up over time. Okay. Okay. So, if, for example, if you stop drinking your liver can regenerate, but it takes a sweet time to happen. It's not happening like we say, it's not like growing your hair. 
you know, if you if you stop cutting it, right? It, sir, it will sir, there's no hope for my hair. As long as there's hope for my liver, <laughs> we're good. Okay, so but other than alcohol, like it isn't just alcohol these days, right? I mean, people that are abusing drugs are are also impacting their liver as well, right? That's right. The drugs out there. You know, just living life. I mean, as we walk down the street, the cars are belting out pollution. We inhale it, all right? The liver helps break that down so the body can get rid of it also. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's one of the biggest organs of detoxification. See, a lot of times with toxins is that it, it's a one-way door. The body absorbs it, but it's very difficult to get rid of it, going back out the other way. And if it wasn't right. for the liver, the liver actually breaks it down to a point, to a form where it can be excreted in the sweat. It can be excreted in the in the lungs. It can ex- be excreted in the urine mm-hmm. and also in the stools. So it's one of those organs that is very important. And we don't pay too much attention to the liver, unfortunately, until it starts breaking down. And usually the first sign of, of issues with the liver, people look at, they say, oh, you have your liver enzyme levels are high. Now, there are certain diseases that affect the liver, but we're not going to talk about those today. We're just talking about day-to-day abuse and use and abuse of the liver. So once you see the liver enzymes high, really, there is no medication out there that will rest your liver and help your liver. So what we have to do is to go back to the old days of herbs, etc. There are several herbs that people have used that have found to be effective in helping the liver regenerate. What are those? The one that everybody knows and off the top is milk thistle. Even I know that one, Gordon. Yeah, everybody knows milk thistle. And and that's because that's one of the, out in the West here, everybody knows it. But, you know, if you talk about Chinese herbs, there's a lot of them that's that's out there. There's a herb called Blopurium, which is very well known for those type of things. There's a lot of herbs. And, no, I'm not here to just say this herb or that herb. Because one of the things I find when we start talking about the herbs is everybody says, well, this herb is only used for this or that herb is only used for that. The thing with herbs is that many one herb has many different uses. And what it works on is dependent on what you what you combine it with. Okay. All right. Yep. Now, the thing, with, I'll just use an example of the milk thistle just because everybody knows it. Yes. Milk thistle, there have been studies with people who have mushroom poisoning. All right? Places in Germany, for example, where they take, you know, a lot of Europeans like to go hunt for mushrooms. And every so often, they get into a batch of mushrooms which they didn't recognize and they got mixed in with a batch for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And they consume it. Next thing you know, they have mushroom poisoning. Well, one of the things that mushroom poisoning does is that it's a free radical mechanism that basically attacks the liver and destroys the liver. And what they found is that if you if you take the milk thistle and you ingest the milk thistle or, or what they sometimes do, they put it IV into the blood yes. in places like Germany, the survival rate goes up huge, meaning that people survive the mushroom poisoning. Okay? So again, so this is one of the things that they do. Hmm. So this is, you know, and unfortunately, in our world today, in the Western medicine, we really don't have medicines that target the liver directly like that. Okay, so what other herbs would you recommend to use in conjunction with the milk thistle? Well, there are herbs like gold coin, which is a Chinese herb called gold coin, right? Mm-hmm. As I said, there's blepurium, and there's a whole slew of these herbs that people have used in the past. Right. And when I say in the past, they're still being used today, which means that I, I know people say, well, we have no clinical studies on it. But you know what? If people have been using it for years and years and years and they're seeing the benefits of it, 
okay, it must mean it's working. And sometimes when I say by the benefits, well, one of the things with when you have liver issues, right, you have jaundice. Right. So if you use some of the herbs and the jaundice disappears, you know it's working for you. Exactly. It it may not be what you call a double-blind clinical study, but by trial and error, people have figured out what to use, how much to use. You you mentioned before that uh, one way to see if you know your liver is under stress is to look at the enzyme levels. Is that something that would be standard in a blood test if you went to your doctor? Yeah, that's usually standard in a blood test, right? So they look at it's called the liver enzymes. Uh, anytime the liver enzymes are high, that means the liver is under stress, and the treatment of choice if you go to the medical doctor is to just leave it alone, watch yeah. it, all right. And try not to stress it. So that means drink no alcohol or less alcohol. Right. Depends on your consumption level. And watch it and say a little prayer. Hopefully it goes back down. Right. And because of the liver's regenerative capacity, a lot of times it goes back down. Right. Now, there's another bunch of people who have high liver enzymes as because they have things like hepatitis, a disease. Right. Where the actual virus attacks the liver itself. Right. For those, they have nice drugs now because what the drugs will do, it'll attack the virus itself and kills off the virus and then allows the liver to regenerate itself. Okay. And other than uh, hepatitis, what happens to our liver if we're not careful? Well, if we're not careful, right, I mean, if God forbid the liver gets something like cirrhosis of the liver. Right. right? There are things like fatty liver that people get, if, if that's what you're alluding to. They're, they're, people get fatty liver. Fatty liver, again, is... The liver looks as if, if it, there's a lot of fat deposits in the liver, and that's usually a sign that the liver is being stressed out. Right? Okay. Now, if you, if you ask me the million-dollar question, what causes fatty liver? Don't know. I don't think anybody really knows why. It, it's just that some people get it, and it, has, it may have, they'll say, I eat well, I exercise, I, et cetera, and I don't drink, but right. I'm getting a fatty liver, right? There are some individuals that just, it just happens to them. And in cases like that, I would say take the milk thistle, take a combination product that would treat the liver. I usually like combination products, and the reason I like combination products, by that I mean combination of different herbs and so on, the reason I like that is because, A, if you have a problem with milk thistle, the other herbs pick up the slack. B, if for whatever reason one of the pathways is for um, helping you with milk thistle block, the other herbs will pick up the slack. And last but not least, if anybody has an allergic reaction or, or sensitive to milk thistle, they can use the other herbs. And usually the other herbs, everything is in lower doses, so chances of anybody getting a reaction is slim, right? But reactions can occur. But if you have less of any particular herb, you will have a better effect because it's combined. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. Next month, we'll learn all about inflammation. Right now, we've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss cognitive bias on the tonic. At Peak Human, they're dedicated to getting you to live 100 times your potential now. They provide access to the most advanced medical technologies available in the world right here in the GTA. DNA testing, hormones, neurobiofeedback, regenerative treatments are just some of the specialized services available to you that previously were only available to the rich and famous. Visit them now at peakhuman.ca and book your free consultation. 
The tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest is local yogi Tracy Sagrati. She has a post-secondary education in biology, molecular biology, nursing, acute care, public health education, and Swedish and Thai massage. She specializes in training yoga teachers, and she's the co-founder of Evolve Retreat, a phenomenal opportunity for women to celebrate and grow together in Costa Rica. For more information, visit EvolveRetreat.org. Welcome back to the show for one of my all-time favorite guests. How are you? Oh, Jamie, I'm so happy to be here. I just love you. I love these chances we have to talk about all about your brain. M- my brain specifically, right? <laughs> no, not not just people's brains, but my my <laughs> warped brain in particular. I had to throw it in. Yeah, I, had to throw I know. It. I know. I'm used to it by now. <laughs> So, so last month we talked about all the ways in which my mind is distorting yep. reality. reality. And, you know, we talked about stuff like black and white and shades of gray and, yeah. and catastrophizing and personalizing. Yeah. But today we're going to discuss other ways in which our thinking gets us into trouble, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, um, you know, so we're talking about cognitive bias. Yeah. And so just to kind of paint a picture of the difference between uh, what we talked about last month, the distortions and cognitive bias, I want to I want to sort of show how they're different. Sure. So what the brain does, imagine, you know, it's got so much information coming in and it has to, or what it does effectively is it tries to create shortcuts yep. so that all of the information that it's processing, that it doesn't have to go through all of the little details every time. And some of those shortcuts are actually really, really helpful. Yep. And they allow us to take information that that is coming in and to package it in the right way and to respond to it in the correct way. And and this is where bias comes in. Distortions, uh, conversely, sort of come from our history, right? And and they can kind of distort or exaggerate reality so that the story that we're telling ourselves isn't true, where a cognitive bias you know, sometimes, sometimes they can be helpful, but not always. Okay. And cognitive bias, I think developed because, you know, in, in the jungle and in, you know, our ancestors needed to make quick decisions and recognize dangers and, 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 you know, so that is a tiger. We have to run, you know, this is a piece of fruit that might be poisonous. So we don't eat that. Those are the types, those are the types of things that our brain had to sort out, but but that isn't necessarily helpful to us in modern society. No, it's not. It's not, you you know, and, and that's absolutely true. Like our brain is adapted for the Savannah environment. It's not, not adapted to contemporary society, you know, and and so it is. It's it's very well adapted for um, fight or flight, yep. uh, which is not necessarily uh, concerned with the subtleties of truth. It's concerned with survival. 
right? And yep. so, so now in modern society where we're not being attacked by a tiger, we have to look at our thinking a little more um, critically. We have to look at it more critically so that we can get a sense of, okay, well, am I, am I just uh, thinking from a threatened state or am I actually seeing things clearly? All right. So what's one way in which our brain sort of creates a shortcut that may not be helpful? So, uh, you know, I, I want to start with the halo effect. Okay. Because uh, I've been thinking about this a lot this week. I actually, I, I wrote a couple of posts about this. So the halo effect is where you get an impression of someone, just an overall, like a quick impression of someone, and you use that quick impression, you, you extrapolate that impression and create an, a picture of their whole character based on it. So the example that I love is when you see someone who's very attractive yeah. uh, because it's so common, right? Well, so, I, actually, I disagree with you. I don't know that there are that many attractive people, but when you see it, but, but, <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's, that, that it's so common. To no, say, okay, no, yeah, but, but 100%. So that's that's, that's so the example that came to my mind. When you you see, too? Okay. Yeah. When you see somebody who's physically attractive, you presume they're smart and you presume they're funny and you presume that they're, and they're capable. they're nice yeah. and that they're somebody that you would want to actually have in your life, right? Yep. Versus you see someone who is not as attractive as whatever the social standard is, you know, yep. that changing social standard. And so you might assume that they're not as successful or that they're not as intelligent or that they're not as kind. One has nothing to do with the other, but that halo effect, it causes us to presume something about their character that isn't really there, right? And, and essentially, it's a shortcut that we've created in our mind, but it's really, it's not true. It's not true. And so the key is to be able to question ourselves and to actually see that we're doing these things. Yep. You know, another one, um, this is kind of backing up a little bit, yeah. uh, is egocentrism. Mm-hmm which no one wants to think I'm egocentric, right? Yep. Some of um, us are forced to recognize the fact <laughs> that they may, and I stress may, be egocentric. Go on. Yeah. So, okay. So just to make you feel better, yep. everybody is egocentric to some degree, right? It's greater in childhood. And overall, it generally, I say generally, decreases as we age, but it is always present. Yes. Okay. So it is a cognitive bias, uh, and it's protective. It's total orientation towards the self. So we're self-involved, we're self-concerned, and it's also linked with the inability to understand someone else's mind, you know, other than your own. And this makes sense because we see the world through the lens of our own experiences, right? So this means that for all humans, it's, it's a little difficult to discern between subjective and objective, Yes. right? And the more egocentric we are, the more self-oriented we are, the more difficult it's going to be to do that. Right. If you're focusing on yourself, it's hard to have empathy for others. It's hard to sympathize. It's hard, yeah. it's hard to put yourself in their shoes and recognize their motives or, or, or reasons or their for their needs. things. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, sometimes it gets mixed up with narcissism, too. But I want to say there, there is a difference um, with narcissists. Narcissists tend to engage in um, manipulative or coercive behavior. Yep. So, so that's not a feature of egocentrism, again, which is something that you do see across all people, you know, over the lifespan. 
But the great thing is, you know, two of the key practices that are really associated with becoming less egocentric are to slow down and to stay present, which is mindfulness. You know, so really critical. So if we practice mindfulness, then we stop living in our own brains and assuming we are the center of the universe. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. You stop assuming that you're the center of the universe. And there's this distance that happens where you stop thinking that you are your thought. I think, like, if I can make that distinction, Mm -hmm. that's the most important distinction. Like, you'll see the thoughts, because before, without mindfulness or without meditation, your thoughts are happening. You don't even realize it. You're You're so engaged in identifying with your thoughts that you don't realize that you have the ability to actually watch them and that they're not you. Right. And so the more that you can do that and recognize, oh, okay, the brain is just thinking. That's what it does. It's not going to stop thinking. It's not going to stop doing that. But you can step back, watch it and recognize that, okay, this is something that I can train. I can make it more adaptable. I can make it more effective and I can make it less egocentric. Okay. So that's about the individual, but another kind of warp yeah. Is, is more of a collective one, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I felt like just with politically what's happening, especially yeah. in the U.S., it was important to bring this up. So it's it's sociocentrism, which is really just the group. It's like group egocentrism. Groupthink. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's it's groupthink. That's exactly what it is. So it's just this blind, unreflective conformity to a group's norms, beliefs, or behavior. Right. And the the interesting thing about this is, you know, when researchers have looked at this sociocentrism they found that there's no group immune to this tendency. Because we tend to think, okay, like this is something that happens in gangs, for example, right? But no, like it also happens in university professors, right? It's just because we have, again, going back to the idea of being in a savanna environment, right? We have a desire and a need to be a part of a tribe because the tribe equals protection, safety, protection. Yep. Yeah, like-mindedness, working towards one goal because you're all of the same view. Yep. Exactly, exactly. But predictably, this causes problems, right? Because being a part of a tribe and survival is not—it's it, not necessarily oriented to truth, right? So sometimes what you see with sociocentrism is justification of behavior, and some examples are slavery, you know, the Holocaust, the Spanish Inquisition, the camps that are the border camps in Texas right now. Well, you know, defining yourself as a tribe sometimes in doing so, you have to define what what who isn't part of the tribe, and that's exactly. and that's what happens, right? There, you end up, uh, and it happens in cloistered environments. I mean. You, you, it, really it, does. it could happen in law school. It could happen yeah. in a kindergarten class. Yeah. It, it could happen anywhere where people are getting together and remain sort of together closely. It happens yeah. online. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. They go into that group think, that group think process. Yeah. I was listening to this podcast the other day and the guy, the speaker said that um, he named, he's a researcher and he said that when you're around another person, you're 30 to 50% more likely to start acting like that person just by being in proximity to them. Hmm. Right. So that just shows you that that relationship, you you can see how groupthink happens. Right. Right. So they're smoking, you start smoking, they're exercising, you start exercising. So it works both ways. And, you know, the biggest thing that I try to mention to when I'm working with groups is to really look at, you know, your tendency or your unwillingness to recognize or condemn acts that are unethical in and of themselves. Right. So when a whole group is getting together and they're unwilling to to condemn an act that, you know, 
that in and of itself is a condemnable act, then you've got a problem. And in something like denial of due process, right? Something like that. Rape, torture, any of those examples, you know, if you're unwilling to condemn that, then you've got sociocentrism happening and it's a problem. Yes. And I I think one of the, we only have time to really to go over one more idea. Okay. Okay. Uh, And I want to discuss confirmation bias because I because I think Thank it's you. a spinoff of sociocentrism, or it certainly yeah. can be, right? Yeah. Where, where you only hear what you want to hear and you only see what you want to see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's exactly it. I mean, when we have confirmation, I mean, everybody has confirmation bias. Yep. And so say you have an opinion in your head and you want to prove that you're right, because there's also that tendency to want to win. Yep. You will look for information and favor information that supports what you already believe, and you will ignore information that's in opposite to what you believe. And in fact, some research has found that when you are present, if someone presents you with information in opposition, you will believe your belief even more strongly. Yes. You will strive harder to you connect will, exactly. with your thought that you're invested in. Exactly. Because it's, it's too difficult to recognize that perhaps the rational basis for your thoughts isn't there. Isn't, isn't correct. Exactly. Exactly. Unfortunately, the reality is we don't have any more time today, (laughs) but you're going to come back next month and we're going to discuss more about this because I always find it super interesting and I'm always, always love when you come on the show. Oh, thanks, Jamie. I really love to be here. Fantastic. We'll be right back on The Tonic. Introducing the all-new Ketoplex line of intelligent ketogenic solutions, including MCT-8X by NuvoCare Health Sciences. Not only will it effectively transition your body into ketosis, the body's fat-burning state, it will also be your secret weapon to beat those uncomfortable side effects known as keto flu. Try the Ketoplex line of products with Nutrisentials Zen Energy to maximize your keto transformation. For more information as to where to get the Ketoplex line of products, including Whole Foods, please visit NuvoCare.ca. That's N-U-V-O-C-A-R-E.ca. Did you know that you and your company can make an impact in the community by simply ordering lunch? Big or small, it's now possible for companies that require catering services all across the GTA to give back effortlessly. Thanks to a unique partnership bringing together a local caterer, Chef's Catering, and Red Door Family Shelter. For every meal ordered from the Red Door special menu, one meal is given back to the women and children seeking refuge at Red Door. Visit chefscatering.ca to discover the menu and support your community. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over five years. Since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. Hi. So lots of people out there may not be fantastic cooks, but they may have an interest in food. And when they're getting a cookbook, they're getting it as a resource. They're getting it because they're learning how to cook. And there's different ways to learn, right? Yeah, there's different ways. And it's interesting to see the trends out there and the new cookbooks that are out there to encouraging people to cook, you know, letting people who are interested in food learn how to cook or, or improve their cooking. It's not just for beginners. Right. So like traditional cookbooks are basically just sort of like a list of dishes, maybe mm-hmm. organized, you know, by appetizer, dessert, main sides. But new cookbooks are, or at least a branch of new cookbooks are sort of constructed differently, right? They are. And I think it's it's a different way of thinking. Think about 
the new math. How do you learn? How do you learn how to how to do math now versus before? I have no idea because I was trained on the old math. Yeah, but. there's a lot of criticisms about the new math, but you know, you you learn the concepts and you understand how to attack right. math problems. So, so when I look at these new cookbooks, which we kind of call building block cookbooks. What they're doing is they're telling you about ingredients, they're telling you about utensils, they're telling you about procedure, and then they're putting it all together for you, right? Exactly. And and allowing you to take one recipe and turn it into other recipes because you understand the process. You understand how to put flavors together and then you can sort of take it from there. It's sort of like, here's the building block and then here's how you can add to it or change it. You can it. extrapolate. So they're almost like they're giving you, and this is the way chefs cook. They have mother recipes, which then they can adapt for the different dishes that they're cooking, obviously on a different scale. But I think if you understand how to, for example, how to saute or how to roast or how to bake or, you know, how, why knife cuts are, imp- are important, you can sort of put these various steps together and make anything you want without necessarily being an experienced cook. Right. And when you think about, you know, the nanas out there, or the boobies or the grandmas who used to learn how to cook by, they'd know when something was done by the way it smelled or by the way it, it touched. But what if you didn't have that or you, those recipes don't work for you because you want to try different recipes now? Right. So, you know, you have to understand what they understood just by doing. And people want to get right to the good stuff. Now, right. right. Yeah. You know, you yeah. don't want to start with the simple recipes, although sometimes the simple ones are the best ones. Yeah. You just have to learn the technique. You know, like my daughter, who is also your daughter, uh, loves well, hopefully. it. Yeah. She watches videos and she she reads all my cookbooks and she knows all this stuff, but she doesn't actually cook. No. So she wants to learn. She's a she, lazy girl, yeah, though. She wants to go right to like, okay, I want to make a sophisticated, I want to make a galette and I'm going to learn how to do that. And she's willing to, you know, like if so these cookbooks will help you get there. Okay. So when we were talking about these cookbooks, the sort of modern approach, let's talk about one that you would recommend uh, that came to you, I think, last year. Yeah. So salt, fat, acid, heat was a a really uh, popular and interesting one that came out. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but definitely worth checking out. There's also, she has a show on Netflix too, with the same name, the chef Salmon Nasrat, it's also social media. Um, And she's coming at it with these components of cooking, salt, fat, acid, heat. You know, there's a whole chapter about salt. So you understand the importance of salt and then you use it more. And she gives you recipes, you know, right. which which emphasize salt. But, but it's almost, I wouldn't say it's on a chemical basis, but mm-hmm. she does explain what, you know, these components do, what they add to the dish and why they're intrinsically important and sort of explains to you the best way of attaining the appropriate levels, for example, of salt. Yeah. So if you're interested in food, it's a good cookbook. If, you, if you're not, you know, it might not be the best one for you because there's a lot of words in there. Like it's a lot of yeah, reading, no, reading in addition to the yeah. recipes. Uh, but I definitely interesting cookbook and different. That was one of the first of this sort of new type of cookbook. So definitely a good one. A new one that came out, which is a little more... You know, maybe accessible is when cooking begins. Uncomplicated recipes to make you a great cook. Well, can't argue with that. It's a long title, but it's very explicit. <laughs> it is. The author is Carla Lally Music. She's a that's food, a great name. Yeah, it is. It is. She's a food director at Bon Appetit, and she also uh, has all these videos on YouTube through the Bon Appetit, which channel. are very popular they with are the millennials. Very popular with the young folk, and I and I watched some, and they were good. They were fun to watch, and again, it's watching somebody do it and seeing what it looks like is. Um, well, it's those videos are what the Food Network used to be back in the day when they were actually cooking as opposed to like doing food game shows. So if you if you need to see 
cooking happening, these videos are on YouTube are great. Yeah, and this cookbook is kind of an extension of 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 those. Yeah, it was videos. very graphic. It is, and and the pictures I thought were great. So there's different um, parts of the cookbook I thought I would highlight. Yeah. You know, talk about you know how cooking begins here. There's a chapter. There's one section on uh, how to live forever on fewer spices, 15 essential spices, and you know so you don't have to buy all the spices out there. But I thought that the spices she chose were interesting, like coriander seeds, mustard seeds, MSG, as well as salt, pepper, cinnamon. So not what you might expect, not what 30 years ago would have been, you know, essential spices to put in your pantry. But this is the new way of cooking and the new flavors that people are interested yeah, in. Yeah, and I, I think that's helpful. Uh, a lot of the modern cookbooks put these lists at the beginning which means if, you, if you've gone to the trouble of reading it, then you're not scrambling if you want to make something. You know, you, you should have these things in your house already, which makes cooking that much easier. Mm-hmm. Then there's another section on techniques. And so each one, like saute, pan roast, steam, boil and simmer, confit, slow roast, pastry dough. So for each one of these techniques, then she's got step-by-step pictures of what an ingredient should look like. So when you're talking about pan roasting, there's pictures of squash and it's this is what it looks like when it's seared properly, and and it's darker than you might think. So you you would know to keep cooking it. It's not ready yet right. until it looks like this. And so there's pictures of squash, and then there's pictures of other food that you can also pan roast and right. what that looks like. And so it's a very graphic, uh, helpful way of getting it. And I think that's the difficulty with most recipes. You know, when, when there's no when there's no pictures sort of carrying you along, you don't know whether you've stirred something enough. You don't know mm-hmm. whether you've baked something enough. So these touch points, it should look like this, it should feel like this, are, are relevant. Yeah, very helpful, really. And then you get to the recipes. And of course, there each recipe looks really good on its own, but then she has this sort of spin it, which, you know, where she gives you alternatives. And while I've seen that in other cookbooks too, I found this to be particularly helpful. She gives you more suggestions, not just you can change this by doing one thing. It's so to give you an example, right. savory summer melon salad with lime, fish sauce, and basil, you know, a sweet savory salad. But she says you can change the melon, you can change the spice, you could change the herbs, you can take away the fish sauce if you want to make it you know, vegan or vegetarian. Each recipe has, you know, it's a recipe with pictures and then alternatives, which she says spin it. Fresh mozzarella with chard and raw sugar snap peas, which looked really good in the picture. But you could use, um, instead of sugar snap peas, you could use green beans, cherry tomatoes, radishes. You could use different oils, um, like walnut oil. You could use ricotta instead of mozzarella. So, you know, you can, the techniques are all the same, but you can change the ingredients. Right. And, and, you know, the thing is with these techniques, I mean, obviously, when you're learning a technique, it's, you, you know, it's, it, you're not going to get it on the first try. I mean, maybe you will, but like anything, cooking is a process. And, you know, the more sauteing you do, the better you're going to get at it. And then the more baking you do, the more you're going to understand what these products, the end product should look like. Yeah. But you can also look at what's, um, what do you feel like eating? What's right. in your fridge? Right. You know, what's in season? And let me try that. Right. And, you know, rather than letting it go bad in your fridge, it kind right. of gives you a bit more freedom. For example, we're going to be making pesto tonight. We don't have pine nuts, so we're going to swap in some almonds instead. That's right. And we have zucchini from our garden, even though you don't love zucchini, but we, we're starting to get that yeah. zucchini crop. So this, we're is, put, this is under protest, but yes, <laughs> yes. we're going to be, we're we're gonna gonna be putting zucchini. zucchini in as well. Yeah. Right. And we know it'll be good. Right. 
Okay, sorry. I digress. Go back to some of those great recipes. All right. Fried greens with bacon, mushrooms, and kimchi. And I, I've, I have a similar recipe. Right. This one uh, looked really good to me. But you can replace the mushrooms. You can make it vegetarian, taking away the bacon. You can change the meat. Uh, so not bacon, but something else. But the technique is the same, and it looks delicious to me. When we've made this before, it's been a great sort of dinner, a last-minute dinner. Kimchi is one of those new, it's not a new ingredient, but it's new. Newly uh, found. It's a darling. Yeah, it's a darling because it's good for you. And it adds spice and, you know, umami to dishes. And it's fermented. It's fermented. So all, all the tonic people out there love it. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And I don't like eating kimchi by itself, but with, uh, with fried rice or grains and bacon, it's yeah, really good. It does go well with pork. Yeah. Yeah. Another one, which I thought was a good example of what she's trying to do, is uh, butter-basted ribeye with crunchy fennel salad. What she says is, we know that rich meats go well with cool, crunchy vegetables. So here's a recipe which has like a, you know, fennel, raw fennel with a dressing with anchovies, rosemary, garlic, vinegar. It's a strong salad, but you can make it with a different meat. You can, you don't have to use fennel. You can use different vegetables. And it's all the same sort of concept of the, you know, freshly grilled meat paired with cool, you know, vinegary salad. Right. I, but, you know... When you're going to swap things in and out, I mean, it's one thing to sort of have free will and free reign. Not everything works together from a flavor profile perspective. So I think it's helpful that she's making suggestions yeah, as to what you can swap in exactly. and out. Because, you know, bananas aren't necessarily an addition to a salad just because you happen to have bananas. I wouldn't recommend putting them in your salad instead of apples, for example. You know? No, no. She gives you specific suggestions. And I I often change recipes and they don't like they're not always they don't always work out well most of the time. I'm not going to comment on that. No, that's that's it. why I'm going to get myself into trouble. Yeah. All right. Next recipe. Uh, one, la- one last one. Swedish pancakes we made. Yes. They were kind of like thicker crepes, thicker, sweeter crepes, and they were really good. I just I wanted to try them. You could you could top them with peanut butter. You could top them with bacon, or you could top them with fruit, maple syrup. We actually used ricotta, made a sweet ricotta cream, which isn't even in her recipe. But the point is you make the pancakes and then you top them with different things depending on your taste and, you know, what your family likes or what you like. So lots of lots of variety. And then there's another uh, cookbook just to mention on the dessert side, one called Simple Cake by Odette Williams. Same idea, 10 base cakes, 15 toppings, a flavor chart, you know, mix and yep. match um, with suggestions about, you know, using this bottom and this uh, frosting to do this. Great cookbook, same concept. Definitely recommend checking that one out too. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. You're going to come back next month and talk more recipes? Of course. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. 
Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Carlisle Jansen, is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. She's also the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can watch her TEDx Toronto talks and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And you can reach out to her at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. Hello, always a pleasure. So you're here today to discuss ways to avoid the following conversation. So do you want to, you know... Yeah, I guess. So, you know, and I don't know how many couples have had that conversation over the course of their togetherness. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, when you reach a certain point and for example, uh, my wife and I have been together for 33 years, if you include our first date. Right. uh, You know, we're talking about date night. Yeah. So you wrote an article about the benefits of planning date nights. Yeah. Or even sex nights. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah, both. We, it we can, can be both yeah. or either or. Okay. We're hoping one leads to the other or vice versa or well, whatever. But sometimes you know. it will. I think sometimes we have to, you know, not necessarily expect that it's always going to lead to sex. Right. But, but that sometimes it's okay to plan just a sex night. Okay. So why is it okay for us to plan it? Like, it seems like it's one of those things that be, it sounds so mechanical, right? Like sex is supposed to be spontaneous. Yeah. And, well, and, and that's what Hollywood um, wants to tell us. Um, and certainly porn to some extent wants to tell us. But right. the reality is that we plan everything in our lives, whether yeah. we're going to get together with our sister for dinner, we're going to go to the dentist, if we're going to go and see a play with our partner, whatever, right? Yeah. We have to plan things. And Sometimes I think because we think that sex is supposed to be spontaneous, we leave it to the end. And then it's the end of the day and we're tired. And um, uh, But the reality is, is that lots of couples plan sex and it doesn't mean that then it's not natural. It doesn't mean that it's not just as good. It doesn't mean that it's cheating or boring. Right. Um, it means that it then happens, which generally is a good thing for a lot of couples who want to keep that kind of side of their relationship alive. Well, I think most do. And in your article, you sort of mentioned all the benefits of planning, yeah. which sort of may offset people's concerns that it's 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 eating into the spontaneity. And the, and the first thing that you mentioned is that, and this is a big one, yeah. it's a big one, yeah. it leads to regularity. Yes, because you sort of think like, okay, it'll happen at some point, and then, you know, you've got parent-teacher night one night, you've got something else another night, you're tired, then you feel sick, then whatever, and then one week leads into two, and then two leads into three, and before you know it, it's really awkward. Yeah. How do we bring this up? Because now it's been a long time. Right, and the presumption is when it's been a long time, there must be an, uh, it isn't just entropy, It's it's there's an issue. And there may not be an issue no, other than no, entropy, right? No, but, you know, no. And it might be that, it, yeah, it might just be that things have kind of built up, and or we forgotten about it or we've prioritized other things and the we have to think about is this something we want to prioritize or not okay 
there's differences in the relationship, right? So at the beginning of the relationship, everybody's, you know, you don't really need to plan for it. Sex happens because it's all new and bright and shiny, but it's different when you're further along in the relationship, right? Yeah. And I think the thing that we forget is that we actually did plan sex at the beginning of the relationship, right? We did plan like... It's so long ago, Carlisle. (laughs) You don't remember. No, I'd have to, I'd have to refer back to manuals and books and things like that. It's been a long time with my wife. Find your day planner from back then. Exactly. But you know, we would, we would, would maybe call if it was 33 years ago we'd call we'd we'd send suggestive messages we would decide like oh i'm going to you know primp up the bed in this way i'm going to wear this sexy thing right. I'm, you know we're going out to the waterfront let's start making out on the waterfront make sure i have a blanket in the car whatever right yep we'd always have planned sex we just forgot the excitement that went into it. And so um, it's okay to do that. And as time goes on, we kind of take it for granted. We figure it's supposed to just happen spontaneously. But the reality is for lots of us, unless we, unless you have two partners who have a really high libido and ready to go at any given moment, generally we have to plan. Okay. One of the other benefits that you, you mentioned in the article is that uh, it <clears throat> builds anticipation, yeah. which seems counterintuitive. Uh, how does that work? Well, when you think that's what we did at the beginning, right? We're thinking about like, you know, we're going to go for dinner here and then we're going to do that. And how would I want to do this? And maybe I'll try talking dirty this time, right? We plan these little risks. We plan these little things. And think about when you have a play that you're going to that you're excited about or a ticket to an event or you're going to see somebody, right? You think about it. You plan it. You think about how exciting it's going to be to see this person, what you want to talk to them about, what you want to eat at this restaurant you miss, you know, what you've heard about this play. Right. Um, so it helps to build the anticipation, which allows you also to kind of get in the mood, especially if you're the type of person who isn't always ready to go at the drop of a hat. Some of us don't have sex on our mind all the time. It's not really something we think about all the time. So we can think about like, what do I? What am I into? What do I want to do? Um, what kinds of things do I want to try? And certainly if you're, for example, in a relationship where your partner's always good to go, yeah. <laughs> then you can plan it for yourself and think like, okay, I'm going to do a surprise, right? It can be spontaneous for your partner. Okay, so Thursday night... I'm going to send a sexy text from the kitchen saying, you know, get ready for me. I'm coming upstairs or, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, So you can still be one of you who needs some time to get into it, to plan it. If you know that your partner is generally ready to go, you can plan it and and it can be spontaneous for your partner. And aside from the spontaneity, you say that planning it may actually make the sex better. How's how's that possible? Well, because you can think a little bit about, you know, like sometimes you're in the middle of it and you're like, oh, where's the lube? Or, you know, or, um, oh, no, where do I, you know, my toys are buried somewhere. Or, um, uh, you know, I can't think of something exciting in the moment to try. And then you just end up doing the same old, same old. So it gives you an opportunity to reflect, to think. You know, we can even talk ahead of time like, oh, maybe we want to try some butt play or we want to try some bondage. I don't know what that's like. Let's talk about it ahead of time. Let's plan for how we want to ease into this. That makes sense. One, and this is sort of for a subset of people, one benefit you say is it may aid in conception for those who are having difficulties conceiving, right? Yeah, like some people, you know, just want to let things happen. But especially if time is ticking and you know that you're only fertile a certain time of the month, you know that, um, you know, you have to kind of hit that mark. You've been trying for a while, whatever it happens to be. Um, Certainly planning it can be helpful so that you're not just all of a sudden like, 
oh, hey, sweetie, uh, you know, let It's time. we we, we got to <laughs> yeah. get on this. Yeah, yeah. I need your erection right now, you oh, know? Got it. Okay. And you say also that planning uh, helps boost energy and the relationship overall. Absolutely. So you can, you know, one thing that's really great is you plan turns. So whether it's a date and or a sex night and and or just sex, yeah. um, you know, it's fun to have something planned for you. So maybe saying to your partner, like, you know, go out and come home at eight and I'll yeah. be waiting for you. There's something special that's going to happen. There's something going to happen. Or, right. you know, um, we've got a picnic planned, but, you know, I'm, I'm bringing the lubricant. I'm bringing the condoms, okay. you know, so you know there's something going on, but you don't know exactly what it is. Where are we going to do this? What's going to happen? That's exciting. And we used to do this often, more often at the beginning of a relationship. So again, just getting into that habit. And it's one of those things where a little bit of effort has a huge impact. So it doesn't mean that you have to spend hours and hours planning. You just have to think about it for five, 10 minutes, and then you'll find that the rewards are really, really much greater. Okay. You say that the actual planning process may actually result in spontaneity. What do you mean by that? So what that means is, let's say you want to try something new. You don't necessarily know what's going to be okay for your partner, what's not going to be okay. And when you're not sure, like they said, I want you to talk dirty. Well, what words can I use? And how how much do you want me to say? See, right now I'm imagining, okay, honey, here's a list of things I want to say. You yeah. check off the ones yeah, you're okay right, with. Right. I don't know. <laughs> well, or like different words for your body parts, different right. words for my body right. parts, different words for having sex, different words for um, different kinds of activities. So you kind of lay that out so you feel more confident and you can be more spontaneous within rather than checking in. Is that okay that I just said that? Is that okay? I'm, you know, you right. want to check in, but... If you're not confident about what your partner's limits are or even your own limits, it's harder to be in the moment, spontaneous, go with the flow. Yeah, and I, and I think having discussions with your partner, even if you think that your partner may not be happy or may not be willing to do these things, you don't know until you have that conversation. And I, sure. pres- I presume it's better to have that conversation than sort of spring it upon them in the moment. Yes. No, do that when you're not having sex generally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not like, hey, can I put my finger here now? Right. When you've never discussed that before. Okay. It's not generally well, a great Well, I think timing. that's generally good advice to ask where you can put your finger and not put your finger. But Yes, but, but if it's the first time, yeah, for sure. right, you want to make sure you've had that discussion. For sure. For those who are looking for more information, what where can they find resources? to? So there's lots of online resources. Um, Laura Korn has um, this great book called 52 Invitations to Great Sex that basically gives you a plan of how to plan out a night. So you don't even have to think about it. You don't it. even have to be imaginative. Yes. It's all done yeah, for you. It's all there for you. So, you know, the internet is a vast world. You're going to have lots of great advice. You're going to have some not so great advice. Um, But even just sitting down and thinking about like, yes, no, maybe lists. What are things that you're open to? What are things that you want to try? What are things we haven't done in a while that you really miss? And kind of building on that gives you um, a little bit of um, a, a list of things to kind of play with. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming. You'll come back again next month? I will come back. It's always lots of fun. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us on The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by Naomi Bussin, Carlisle Jansen, and other interesting writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA, 
and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss foods for sleep, fluoridation, and other health and wellness topics. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.